I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Very excited to be sitting down with Dr. Sheldon Cheskis right now. Um, this is uh, this has been a long time coming. A um, uh, little bit of context: a couple of years ago, Brian and myself were emceeing a a fundraiser uh, in Toronto, um, and it was I believe it was all about like heart health. Um, yep. uh, it was for an organization called CanNet, and Sheldon was there that day giving a presentation. That coolest really, presentation. The, the fucking coolest presentation I've seen in a long time <laughs> because it was a presentation that had everything to do with um, the biggest drone I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. And the drone specifically was a, a drone that is utilized in delivering um, healthcare in rural areas. Um, and we're going we're gonna to go into it deep. But uh, Sheldon, you are uh, you're a professor with the Division of Emergency Medicine. Uh, Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto, a scientist at the Lee Ka Shing Knowledge Institute at St. Michael's Hospital, and an affiliate scientist at Sunnybrook Research Institute. You, you've got one of those um, resumes that when I read it, and I, I literally stop, there's much more. Uh, when I read it, I, I, I immediately feel quite inadequate as a human. <laughs> like, I'd you rack all this up. Yeah. I have time for all this shit. Uh, Sheldon, why don't, you, uh, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself to, to the listeners today and, uh, and give us a little bit of insight into uh, the work that you do. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, I'm, as I said, Sheldon Cheskis, I'm medical director of actually Sunnybrook uh, Base Hospital, which is a paramedic training um, oversight uh, facility in Ontario that really uh, focuses uh, on the area of research that I'm into, is which is really cardiac arrest. So how do we improve the outcomes for people whose hearts stop, putting in layman's terms, whose hearts stop beating uh, at any time, any day, any place in the world. So, um, yeah, so I got involved in this area of research, you know, uh, probably 20, 25 years ago. And what I noticed over time uh, was there was this huge disparity between outcomes for people who had cardiac arrest in the city versus outcomes to people who have cardiac arrest in rural areas, right? So, um how do you sort of address that inequity, uh, given the fact that, you know, we like in Canada to treat everyone the same, so everyone has the same chance of survival. The trouble with that concept is, uh, you know, you don't have as many ambulances in rural areas, your response time is longer, and you have a cardiac arrest, your heart stops beating. The most important thing is to get a defibrillator to them as early and as quickly as possible, because that will, in the most part, determine 
your likelihood of survival. So, you know, you know, we've been doing lots of work in the area in urban areas. You know, you have all these public access defibrillators. So defibrillators in airports and gyms and um, huge buildings. The trouble, though, <laughs> is 85 percent of those cardiac arrests never happen in those areas right so right. put all these resources when people are actually dying where they die they die at home so 80 percent of people die at home so that defibrillator that we put out there isn't really a benefit to these people so is there a way to get defibrillators to people quicker well that's when we started thinking about drones and and that's where you guys saw me i think that you know, when i was speaking about our early work and using drones to try to improve uh, the access of people get drones to people quicker in areas where ems is either not there where they take a long, long time to get there. So, you know, I basically started as a cardiac arrest researcher and really focused on trying to improve these outcomes in rural and remote communities. So that's kind of how I got here. Uh, I'm so uh, curious. There, there's so many things that you just said that like even recent conversations that we've had about community paramedicine that that I want to dive into. But my my first big question is, is uh, I'm curious about defibrillators in in the sense that like, how much more effective are defibrillators in uh, the instance of a sudden cardiac arrest um, in comparison to like traditional like CPR or uh, chest compressions? Great, great. That's a, such a good question. So, and it's a misconception by many people, right? So when you have someone who suddenly collapses and unresponsive, you do CPR. And you do CPR with the aim of trying to maintain perfusion or blood supply to the brain and other organs but usually that cardiac arrest if you're going to survive is due to an irregularity in the heart rhythm so the heart beats irregularly and goes into what we call ventricular fibrillation this chaotic rhythm and the only way to get out of that is with a defibrillator so you can do cpr for as long as you want and that will buy time so if you do cpr you'll keep that patient who may have a shockable type of rhythm, that ventricular fibrillation I mentioned, you may keep them in that rhythm for a longer period of time. But I haven't seen anyone who you do CPR on and say, hey, man, I'm doing good now. <laughs> usually, they, <laughs> yeah. usually they need a shock, okay? And yeah. if they do say, hey, man, how you doing? It's unlikely they were in cardiac arrest in the first place. Right, okay. right. So, that, so, so, the defibrillator, so the defibrillator kicks them out of this rhythm and, and exactly. res, res, resets it back to normal. Perfect, beautiful. That's exactly what happens. So you take something chaotic with no blood supply, to something organized with a blood supply. And, and that's what the defibrillator does. In terms of like historical context, how, how new are mm. defibrillators? Like, I, I know that, I know that this, this notion of like, you know, utilizing a, an electronic shock to a person who's coding in the hospital, that I guess that's probably been around for at least a while, but rubbing the paddles together. Yeah, yeah, the clear, clear. clear yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I think people would do that more if it was that fun. Still, yeah, you know? right. I mean, just yeah. doing it for fun. Um, but at what point? At what point did we start to see defibrillators being introduced to for for like public use um, uh, uh, in like emergency outside situations hospital, outside so. of yeah. a hospital? Yeah, outside of hospital. I think you've seen them probably now for at least the last twenty years. So. Public access defibrillators, these very simple to use defibrillators have been out there a long time. 
The biggest issue with them, though, is that the fear that people have of using them, if not trained, is really decreasing the ability for people to use them. So, you know, we have places in Europe where people are trained, people understand, and they want to use them, and their uptake of using public access defibrillators is much greater. But here in Canada, and for the most part, North America, there's a lot of public access defibrillators out there. But I think certainly, to my mind, there's still this fear of the general public of doing harm, which is probably the biggest misconception of all. And I think people worry about medical legal risk. Mm -hmm. People worry about uh, doing harm. Uh, pretty hard to do harm to someone who's dead. Okay, mm, and these yeah. people are dead. And I think people need to understand that these devices are incredibly simple to use. They're as simple as press the start button and follow the instructions. That's mm -hmm. really as simple as they are. But for many people in the time when, and the pressure, if this is your loved one next to you, you can do all the practice you want. But when, when the shit hits the fan and the real thing happens, that's where emotion takes over. Yeah. It's maybe not as simple for people to do. I'll tell you one of the most interesting things that we did guys is when we first went to the town of Caledon to do some test flights of our drone, we actually interviewed people in the community to say, hey, what do you guys think of our idea about drones and delivering AEDs? And overwhelmingly, they said, hey, doc, we love drones, but what the hell is an AED? We were going to do all this amazing work to get them there. But then if the end person doesn't know how to use the defibrillator, you're back at square one again. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's that's the challenge for so many people and saying, hey, you know what, trying to break down those myths, those silos and tell people, hey, you can't do harm. These are simple to use. That's that's really what we really need to focus on. Now. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing, though, about a, like a drone showing up is that I so I imagine if somebody had a um, like a sudden cardiac arrest in a in a mall and there was a defibrillator on a post right next to them. I could very easily see nobody going to the defibrillator mm. and and using it, but if a fucking AED flew in in a drone, <laughs> in a drone and like now. Landon was like <laughs> like instructing you on what to do, I feel like well, there's probably a higher likelihood I mean, that you would use that than the one yeah. in the mall. I, I mean, know. speaking Guys, to yeah. like speaking to the the like the the idea that there's just the general public, there's this like feeling of I don't know how to use it, I don't want to do any harm. Like this is old news for our listeners who listen to the show regularly, but Brian and I, you know, stumbled on a guy at midnight in the Calgary in a deserted Calgary airport a couple of years ago, and and it, it he it he was dead. We thought he was dead on dead on the yeah. toilet, and uh, you know we did CPR and we had the defibrillator and we had the paramed paramedic on the phone and you know and I mean adrenaline is just yeah through the roof and yeah. like trying to listen to the paramedic and also listen to the automated instructions from the defibrillator. I mean, you're just, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, and and I would put myself probably in the, the top 25 percentile of like stress management in tough situations. And I was going, Whoa, yeah. <laughs> this is hardcore. But, what a, but that's a van, what a great comment you made there though, in terms of, and we know this. So we know when cardiac arrest occurs in public places, um, 80% of the time, there's a defibrillator within 500 meters. 
So your comment was great in terms of, you know, you go into a mall and have it, who knows where the defibrillator is, who's going to come with a defibrillator, right? Mm -hmm. So it's that instruction piece that we, that was mentioned that really, I think, helps to calm down uh, people in terms of doing CPR. So in one of our drone test flights, we actually uh, affixed to the defibrillator a FaceTime app. So what happened is when the drone dropped the defibrillator, we used a FaceTime app to guide the provider into the use of the AED. I got to tell you, all the providers who used the FaceTime app on the defibrillator said, hey, this is like, you know, forget the, the dispatcher telling me what to do. Here, I feel like someone's with me. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's the future to me of what I call video guided uh, defibrillator use or video guided CPR where the bystander feels like someone's with them there as opposed to listening to someone and your comments was beautiful I'm listening to dispatcher I'm listening to the prompts on the machine I don't know who the heck to listen to and I got yeah, a dead yeah. person next to me so yeah. I can see how people get overwhelmed by that so these are some of the things that we're trying to look at to make it easier for bystanders to use defibrillators I think that would have been incredible in that situation yeah. to yeah, have to have sure. to have video conferencing and, and, and you know obviously we're making you know, pretty big strides in terms of, you know, internet and data capabilities every year that make these, make it easier and easier to have functionality like that. But that would have been, I mean, think about how how much different that would have been to not feel like it was just you and I in a bathroom mm, trying, yeah. to, trying to bring this guy back to life. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious, uh, Sheldon, to, to kind of dive into the process of, of, looking into drones as a, as a form of, of like AED transportation uh, or AED accessibility. Um, wh like where did the idea come from? Uh, Cause I'm, I'm sure that before this idea came to light, there was maybe some brainstorming of like, okay, we have this issue. AED is not being readily accessible in, in rural areas. How do we change that? And and I'm wondering, like, what were the what were the early yeah. ideas or concepts that you were thinking of, and and at at what point did drones come into the picture, and how did that yeah. happen? So I'll tell you what we did. We looked at about fifty thousand cardiac arrests over about an eight year time period in southern Ontario, and we were already interested in the drone concepts. We already thought drones was going to make a difference if they were used properly. So what we did is I worked with engineers at U of T, and they sort of mathematically mapped out. Over these 50,000 cardiac arrests over five years, what was the response time by our current EMS system? Then, if we put drones in variety areas of southern Ontario, what would that theoretical response time be if a drone was actually sent as opposed to a VMS vehicle? Thinking that an EMS vehicle, you know, it's not always a straight path. Mm -hmm. There's weather to think about, which is also an issue with drones, but the path is much different. So what we found was that by Im implementing drones in southern Ontario, we could cut down rural response time by about 11 minutes. We could cut down urban response time by about seven minutes uh, in cardiac arrest. And given the fact that survival decreases about 10% per minute, those are huge wow. numbers. So see, we said, hey, we said, you know what? We got this great geospatial fancy term model that says, hey, if I put drones in point A, B, and C, in theory, we could make a difference. Mm. So that was our kind of our first work that we published and said, hey, people got excited. They said, okay, this is cool. That's math. What about feasibility? 
can you actually do it? So then when we did our first test flights, what we did was we created mock 911 cardiac arrest. So we made a call into 911 and we said, okay, we're gonna send EMS to this location. And from the same start point, we're gonna send a drone. And we're gonna see who actually gets there first. And in every case, we did flights in town of Caledon. We did flights in County of Renfrew, every situation the drone beat EMS to the response Whoa. time. So that basically said we took something that was theoretical and in fact made it show that it was in fact feasible. So that was our first real look at it and say, hey, I think we got something here. It, say, it sounds like a, like an episode of Top Gear where you got like a Porsche Cayenne SUV racing like yeah, exactly. a skydiver and, <laughs> and like which one gets off the mountain or the base of the mountain first. Uh, exactly. that's, that's really that's really fun. Um one of the things that made me think about was like the like how did what does it what does it actually look like in in practice? So you know you mentioned how there's the idea of of placing drones in in A, B, and C area to to sort of cover a certain amount of area to to reduce the the the, the call time or the I guess the the time that um, that care is being given. But like, where do, where would these drones exist? Like, is there like, a, like, a, like, where are these launch pads exist? Great question. So generally, we're pretty smart. We EMS <laughs> systems, they kind of know where cardiac arrests are going to occur. So, hey, listen, people who put ambulance stations and fire stations and police stations, they know where shit hits the fan, right? Right. Yeah. So they put them where you're probably going to be pretty close. So in our modeling, it was so remarkable in the town of Caledon, probably the best place to put the drone is actually at the ambulance station. Mm-hmm. And right. there's two things important for that, right? One is because if you're going to have a drone launch pad, you got to make it secure, right? So if you put it in the middle of a city, there's issues in terms of who's going to keep an eye on it, who's going to maintain charge, who's going to maintain the drone. So you want to make it in a place where um, one is feasible, two, you're going to decrease response time, three, it's safe. So you're going to put them likely in fire stations, ambulance station, police station. Um, and we've actually done some work in Vancouver and Victoria where we looked at using drug stores. Where um, oh. so in uh, London, London Pharma is a place up in in Victoria. Where we've also looked at using that as a launch site. So you need to have when you're thinking about launch sites, you just need to make sure there's personnel. It's safe. Someone can charge and keep the battery. So that's why EMS and police are so interesting, right? Because um, because then there's always usually someone there 24 yeah. seven, and and that's when cardiac arrest occurs. So people may intuitively say, well. Why the heck am I going to put it at a police and ambulance station if I'm going to send an ambulance from there? What people don't realize is very rarely is an ambulance in the ambulance station. They're usually out on calls or usually at a hospital. They're usually roaming in areas of high density calls. So they're not usually coming uh, from the actual station. So um, we've thought about this and all these modeling seem to suggest that you could still improve response time by any of these locations. So those are the places that we've looked at. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. In, in terms of like a uh, risk assessment, like I, I've had a, a couple drones before and I've flown them into trees and into buildings yeah. and shit, crashed them a bunch of times. Yeah, you don't have a um, license or anything. But. Yeah, I'm not a professional drone <laughs> pilot by any means. Um, but but I'm curious, like is that in terms of risk assessment, like is that something that is of concern and like how do you sort of plan or or prepare like, to is it make a risk sure that to have you fly the drone. Is that <laughs> no, what you mean? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, like even with a a a professional pilot, like say they're flying, and there's just some drone malfunction, and the a prop stops stops working, and it flies oh, in the ground and ends up killing yeah. some. Well, are they piloted or are they automated? Yeah, like how does it work? So, so fantastic question, guys, because this is so big difference between. Remember, these are beyond visual light of sight drones. So these are drones that are being flying by a central dispatch. It's not unlike the dispatch at Pearson Airport. So they see all the air flight, they see all the air traffic in the area. Whoa. They see all the flights in the area. So they know where that, and remember, we're gonna be flying at uh, 300 feet max. People are, you know, airplanes, commercial airplanes are flying at 27,000 feet max, 35,000. Mm. So that's not the issue. Mm. Where the issue comes in, and yes, you're 100% weight. So we've worked with Transport Canada. We work with Nav Canada um, because clearly regulatory issues are huge, right? So that's why you don't see drones flying anywhere near airports. I can tell you right now, you're not going to be flying near airports. Mm. So there's you're five kilometers from airports, you're not going to be flying. So um, that's a no-go. Where are the other areas that are safety issues? High level of winds, you're not going to be flying. Okay, because, you know, drones are like small planes. If there's a high wind, you're not going to be able to do it. A lot of drones may not like precipitation. So if it's raining, that may be an issue. So it's pretty clear to me, whereas I probably thought initially we'd be able to get it to everyone. Now, as I've gone further and doing my research in this, it's clear that there's some places that you're not going to fly a drone mm. in. One of the other areas that we've worked in is when we look at work in rural areas. So one of the biggest knocks in rural areas is um, is obviously the response time. The issue, though, is if I'm going to get a drone there, I need a cell signal. Right. So, right. you know, do you have areas where you're going to lose cell signal and therefore lose communication with the drone? That's a no go. That's definitely a safety issue. Anytime you lose communication with the drone, the only thing left is for the battery to run out and then the drone to drop to the ground where it lands is nobody's guess. So what we've been able to say is what I can do is I can take a geographic area. I can map out cell signal in that area. And then when a 911 call comes in, if it's in an area that's not that I'm going to lose cell signal, we're not going to send a drone there. Mm -hmm. So we've learned that you need 3G, 4G, 5G. You also, some people use, use sat phone sort of communication. So therefore, you don't lose a signal at all when you have satellite connection. So those are all things we've been looking at to ensure, one, you never lose connection because you never want to lose control of the drone. Mm -hmm. But as was mentioned, these are not flights like me and you are flying in our backyard. So we're doing test flights uh, next week, uh, in two weeks' time. We're doing some test flights up in Muskoka. And the drones are going to be controlled by a station in Vancouver. 
So that oh. shows you how unbelievable and how cool yeah. is that? That's yeah. okay. Yeah, maybe yeah, so, it, you could hire me to fly them too, because actually, <laughs> well, like, just despite well, despite those accidents, because it was never pilot error. Like, honestly, I'm a fucking sweet drone it's pilot. Not my fault. It, it's because the battery died or the cell signal. Yeah, uh, never, honestly, I'm never a, your fault. I'm a fucking sweet drone pilot. Yeah. Every, every little sweet until the drone crashes. Man. Yeah. Okay, that's what happens. But, but so what happens is you have a pilot who sees the sees the drone path. So you get the 911 call, you get the GPS location, you press the button, the drone takes off. But also there's manual override where the pilot is seeing on camera the path of the drone. So once I get to the site, I got to drop the drone from 200 feet to be able to see where I'm going. So we have cameras that are looking in descent. Because if I send you a GPS address from Google Maps, hey, you know, I'm not going to put the drone on the top of your roof as opposed mm. to the front yard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have camera on descent. We have a pilot on descent. And now what we've been using is a wench that actually winches down a package containing the AD from a height of anywhere from 50 to 100 feet. It winches it down, drops the package, and the winch comes up and the drone That's takes so cool. off. Man, that is, is so that cool. cool. Have, have That's you really got, cool. That's I really so need cool. to know, like, have you had anybody request to borrow your technology for like cool things like proposals or like stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> not, not yet, man. I'll think about that. <laughs> is he, is he, uh, like Amazon deliveries? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazon stole your idea. Um, is, uh, is, does 5G, implementation have any like tangible impact on this like is yeah. that is that changing the game 5g will be huge so hey listen you got a drone you got a 5g signal you're going to be able to go a long way trouble is most of the rural areas don't got 5g right yeah. so mm-hmm. so i think guys where the you know i'm talking a lot about <laughs> rural areas i think probably the best is going to be suburban the mm-hmm. big downtown centers I think response times are good there. So I don't think you're going to get a big bang for the buck in the urban center because for me to put a drone out in downtown Toronto, wind, tall buildings, those are all no-nos with drones, right? So you get in some of those wing corridors with big buildings, those are a no-go. Rural, people will say, well, you know what? The cardiac arrests are so infrequent there, are we going to make a big bang for the buck there? So therefore, what you have in the middle is that sort of suburban area where high frequency of cardiac arrest, not necessarily a ton of high rise buildings. I think that's where you're actually going to make the biggest bang for the buck. So these are all things that you got to weigh when you're trying to decide which communities would you put them in. So Mm. listen, I love the rural, but I think the suburban would also be an area that we're going to hit on. Yeah, Mm. I think of like, I think of cities like like Ottawa stands out as, as a city yeah. that just has like a crazy sprawling suburb mm-hmm. component to it. Yeah. That's like expanding yeah. and expanding, you know, like there's pieces of Ottawa that were rural 10 years ago and they're just, they're a part of the suburban city. hundred percent. hundred percent. I think that Brampton, Mississauga, like yeah. just so many areas, these, you know, these are big, big cities where there's lots of like a rural components to them. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, when I started driving out to some of these rural centers to see it, I said, Oh man, I had a cardiac arrest here. Finish me off. I'm done. Cause you just know, just know yeah. it's going to be impossible to get to some of these places. Yeah. Where, where are we at right now in terms of the, the like actual application of this being something that could be, could be sure. utilized on a day-to-day basis. So my home, my hope right now is these are hopefully 
our last test flights that we're going to be doing. We're testing a new wench to drop the drone. We're testing a camera to ensure that we actually can see where we're going on the way down. And this has already been done. So these are like our final steps to show Transport Canada and Nav Canada that this is a doable solution. So my dream is when a 911 call comes in, we send not only EMS, but a drone to the sites in these particular areas. What I want to do has just been done in Sweden. So the Swedes, uh, I give them credit. I, I always wanted to be the first to do it, but they, they just reported a case in which um, someone had a cardiac arrest in Sweden, one of the ur urban areas in Sweden. They sent the drone, a doctor driving by the area of the house sees no. this guy have a cardiac arrest on his front lawn. He goes, he begins doing CPR, and then, then he says, and he says this in this article, out of the blue, I heard something coming from the sky. It was the drone. <laughs> it dropped the AED right next to God? the doctor. <laughs> yeah. The doc, the doc put on the defibrillator, shocked the patient. Uh, and the patient survived to, to, to discharge. So wow. it's happened. And I think what, what I've always said to people is it's just going to take one case. I, I obviously wanted to be the first to be able to do it, but these guys have done it. It takes one case for people to say, you know what, this is real. And mm. I think it, it heightened the interest, hopefully, of those at Transport Canada, NAFCAN. I think People, people in the industry, I think, know we have the technology. It's about doing it safely. And I think now that we have enough experience, we're going to say, hey, you know what, we can do this. And we know as well, there's areas where we can't do it. And therefore, we maximize the safety while minimizing the risk and the benefit mm -hmm. to the patient. So, you know, my vision, though, is much bigger than just AEDs. To me, cardiac arrest is a small component uh, of, <laughs> of what I call time-sensitive medical emergencies. So what we're creating now is known as a medical drone. So what I want to be able to do is, let us say someone's having anaphylaxis from, a, from an allergic reaction, put an EpiPen in my medical mm -hmm. drone. Mm -hmm. If someone's having a trauma or car accident in rural area Nova Scotia and they're bleeding out, put a trauma kit, put a tourniquet in that drone. If someone's having an opioid crisis in an area that we can't get mm -hmm. too quickly, put Narcan. So we've created a medical drone that creates not only a defibrillator, but an EpiPen for anaphylaxis, Narcan for opioid, a trauma tra tourniquet for trauma and stop the bleed kit so that now I can use a drone not just for cardiac arrest, but for a wide range of medical emergencies. Yeah. And that's going to increase the benefit overall uh, other than just cardiac arrest. So I think that's the way to maximize the benefit of yeah. the drone. The next uh -huh. step from there is just strap a doctor to it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we've seen that, too. Witch me down! <laughs> Witch me down! <laughs> That's like minority report. It's know? crazy. Like, it's crazy. Like, I, I think I think we're surrounded by examples of this, like, every day with the way that technology is evolving so rapidly. But But in the sense that you think about things like this, you have a conversation about things like this, it blows your mind, and you go, and you just go, man, imagine... Imagine describing this solution to somebody like 50, 60, 70 years ago and going, you know, like yeah. someone's going to have a heart attack and he's like, we're, we're going to put this machine. They're like, what machine? You're like, it's a cardiac arrest machine. They're like, what's that? And you're like, we're going to strap it to a drone. And they're like, what the fuck is a drone? Yeah. And you've got all these like 
all these things and you're like it flies to them and then it dr- like and it's flown by somebody in another city and they're going to drop it down and it's going to save their life and there's people there's people that have been alive for so long that they're just they've watched all they've watched of this all come of that. to fruition yeah. Yeah. Like, wow yeah <laughs> Yeah, simpler. Kill times. me now. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's uh, it really is like I, I again I said it in the beginning, but like when we saw you talk uh, a few years ago, now um, I mean, even then it, it was it was kind of like astounding to Brian and I to, to see this drone, to think that this is this is actual technology that we could see in in the coming time, and to hear that it's just continuously evolving and that you know we're we're that much closer to to actually seeing it happen today and knowing that it it has actually happened at one point yeah. like <laughs> i i'm just so like i can't wait i i i think this is one of the coolest things that i've ever come across in in the 6 years of us doing this podcast and uh and i just i'm so stoked that you that you were willing to come on the show and and give us a little bit of insight into the work that you do because it really is cool yeah mm-hmm. yeah and having the yeah. and having, having had the unfortunate, ex, uh, unfortunate but interesting and adrenaline pumping experience of having to hook somebody up to a defibrillator, uh, there are so many variables that are, yeah, like unaccounted for. And if you if you could if I could end up in an experience where I make that phone call and that is delivered to me. Mm. I mean, just, yeah, it's such a chaotic experience mm. that even the smallest things made more simple, mm. make a big difference. Yeah. Fantastic comment. And I totally agree with that. Like, I think that's so much of what we're trying to do is trying to simplify the thing. Right. So, you know, it's, it's already emotional enough when you have people who sustain cardiac arrest and you're there trying to help um, yeah, having something brought to you, whether it's a drone or a bystander brings in AD that makes the whole process simpler, but yeah, this has been really great guys. Like I said, I, you know, when you guys were, were up at CanNet, I, I thought you did a phenomenal job. Uh, and then when I got the email to say, Hey, you guys want to, you want to come on and give us an update on how the drone stuff is coming on? I remembered you guys. I said, yeah, for sure. Love to come on and, and speak to your audience because I think it's it's really cool. I think you guys do some fantastic stuff. And hopefully the audience got a little bit about this, about what the future, what the future is for medicine. I always find for audiences, you take technology and you take cool technology, you take saving lives, you put those together. Hard for people to say that's not cool. You sort of you sort of hit on everything there. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been a blast, man. I'd be happy to come once I get that first save. I'll come back. We'll talk about absolutely. that one. Too. Absolutely, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much, Sheldon. This was really awesome. Fantastic, guys. Thanks so much, and uh, best of luck to y'all. Okay. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.